That's what it's about. It's about serendipitous connection, isn't it? So much of the time, if we just keep showing up, things happen, connections get made. We didn't even plan on them, you know, but they're there. And, uh, and, and that's what life is. I get calls. I get a lot of calls you know, from people who are really going through it. I mean, who among us isn't going through it from time to time? And the question that they all have is, you know, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling stuck in this way. I don't know how to get out. What do I do? I'm praying. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing my, my uh, daily devotions. And nothing is changing. And so the question really becomes, how do we get from here to there? If we're in a place that we don't want to be, if we're in a place that is uncomfortable, traumatic, hurtful, if we're grieving, if there are things in our life that we can't fix, we can't change, and we really want to move on, we want to go to another place. We hear about this kingdom. We hear about this place out here. And you know what? When we just talk the words, when we just speak about them, they're just platitudes. Might as well put them on a Hallmark greeting card for all the good they're going to do you. We don't need these abstractions. We don't need these theological niceties. We need something concrete. We need something that really is going to move us from here to there. You know, the problem that we all have is that we've been taught from our earliest youth, and the church has done this, and, and our society does this. We're taught that there is something out there that's going to come and save us. There's someone out there that is going to come and save us. And so if we just do everything right, you know, if we hunker down, if we just hang on, you know, the salvation is coming, the Savior is coming. But Jesus is telling us that it's just the opposite of that. Isn't it interesting? The church keeps telling us, look and wait. And Jesus is saying, don't wait. <laughs> He's saying just the opposite. There's nobody coming. There's nothing coming. And you want to know why? Because it's already here. He is already here. You know, it's like as if we were waiting for a train. That reminds me of another song. Busted flat in Baton Rouge waiting for a train. Feeling near as faded as my jeans. That's got to be the best opening to any song ever, I'm telling you. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that just amazing? What a line. Waiting for a train, feeling near as faded as my jeans. Okay, Bobby flagged the diesel down just before it rained. <laughs> Rode us all the way to New Orleans. Okay, I had to finish that. I got it out of my system now. All right. <clears throat> and I'm hearing Janice already. <sighs> We're waiting for a train, peering down the tracks, you know, with everything in us. We need that train. We need that connection. And it's already sitting on the platform. People have unboarded. And, and, you know, it's as if we're sitting at a table that is laid out with a feast and we're starving to death and praying for God to give us sustenance and he's just kind of banging his head and saying, take and eat. It's already here. It's already laid out for you. We've been sold a bill of goods that there's something we need to wait for. First thing Jesus says out of the box, Matthew 1.15, the waiting is over. The kingdom is is here. The kingdom is now. See, before time even began, God made his choice. God decided before the world began, before we began, that he was going to give us everything there is to give, that nothing was ever going to be held back. He already made his choice. 
For us here, it's what part of everything don't we understand? Why can't we get that good news that Jesus is talking about? The real good news. That everything that we could ever need or anything and everything that we could ever want is already here. This is why I love that image of Michelangelo's horse. And I know I've said this in here before, but maybe for some of you my jokes are still new. You know? When Michelangelo was commissioned to do a work, he would get a block of stone, whatever it was, marble, limestone, that he was going to carve, and he would just circle that thing, and he would imagine the finished sculpture standing inside the heart of the stone as if it were frozen in a block of ice. And once he had it down in his mind completely to every last vein and curve, the only thing left to do was to remove everything that wasn't the horse, that wasn't the statue. It was already there. See, in every one of us, this person that is eluding you, this place that you want to be, this state that you want to be in, is already inside of you, as if encased in a block of ice. And so our spiritual journeys aren't about going out and finding something that will save us. It's not about going and acquiring something out there. It's simply removing everything that is not the kingdom you because it's already here. It is the exact opposite. And this is the hardest thing for us to get, because the world doesn't work that way. Society doesn't work that way. Your parents didn't work that way when you were growing up, I'll bet, for most of you. And so everything is running the other way. And here is Jesus. Good news, good news, good news. I'm telling you, it's something completely different than you think. God decided before anything that this is already Done. Take a look at here. Let's read a few verses, see if we can get this in our heads. Luke 17, verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom is in your midst. And the word that he uses there in Greek for in your midst, entas, is one of those all-purpose prepositions. It means within, among, and in the midst all at the same time. And the Aramaic word standing behind that Greek word, legaumen, means moving dynamically from inside to outside. And so everything is always here. It's always now. And it bursts forth to manifest. This is what Jesus is always trying to get across. And it's right here in plain sight. But we miss it because our viewpoint is so skewed. We are so engineered (laughs) environmentally to go out and to find and to seek. And yet, God is always here, always now. Take a look at this next one at Luke 7.31. This is when he's getting completely trashed for the things that he's doing from the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. That has got to be one of my favorite word pictures in the New Testament. It is so evocative. You can just see it, can't you? See what he's talking about here? The music is playing. The music is always playing. There's never been a time when the music wasn't playing. But we're not dancing. We're waiting. And if we're supposed to be weeping in this moment, entering into this moment, we're not doing that either. We are oblivious to all these things that are going on. God already made his decision. He's done. (laughs) 
There's nothing more for him to do. There's nothing more he can do except continue to urge us on to see what is already here, what is already in front of us. God made his choice. Now it's our turn. See how that works? It is as simple as choosing the everything that is already here. Choosing what is already in front of us. It's so hard to do, but it all comes down to choice. Everything comes down to choice. I remember one of the Harry Potter movies. You can find wisdom in the weirdest places, you know. Toward the end of the movie, Dumbledore is talking to Harry. And he says, it's not our abilities that show us who we are. It is our choices. Think about that for just a second. Life really is just a series of choices. It's just decision-making. It's moment by moment by moment, and every moment contains a choice. In fact, that's how you know you're in a moment, if there's a choice in front of you. The choice is the moment. The choice defines the moment. Every moment that we live, there is a choice to do something or not, to engage or not. It's all about choices, and we don't think of it that way. Because there's a decision, there is time. There is a moment. Something is happening. We can engage. We can see what is really here, the everything that God has already given us, or not. It's completely up to us, and it always is. And in the end, all we are, if you want to think about it, is the sum of our choices. What else is there except what we choose. If we are one with God, if we say we are one with God, it's because we are one with God's choices. We choose as God chooses. That's how we know anything about ourselves. If we say we're married, how do we know we really are married? If we choose to continue to be one with our spouse, to make choices that bring the relationship closer together over time. Take a look at the next verse at John 5. What is Jesus saying? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Jesus said he was one with the Father. He proved it by only doing what the Father does, only choosing what the Father chooses. That's why his teaching had authority. That's why the people saw him in a completely different light than the other religious authorities of their time, because his choices and his words were the same. What he chose was what he was doing. Our choices show us who we are, and all we really have is the power to choose And each choice comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. We're responsible for our choices, each one we make, but not the law. You know, last week we were talking about, I think I ended with the idea that if you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And if you're afraid, then the whole world looks like law, looks like the need for absolute certainty. But once you know you're loved, really loved, then the world can look like a playground. Then it can look like an adventure. Then it can look like an amiable uncertainty. We can now live with uncertainty because we know 
in our back pocket, we've got that love that we can't lose. But if we're living in fear, we need the certainty. We need the law. We need all that pounded down on us. So, what are we supposed to do with law? We're not responsible for it, if I'm correct. We're responsible for our choices, but not the law. Law is based in fear, obedience to the law, of course. So, what do we do with the law? Do we just throw it out? Is that what... What place does law have in our lives anyway? What can we do to start getting down to principles that are going to help us with these choices that we're trying to make? Remember, we're trying to get from here to there. We're trying to get from one place to another in terms of attitude, in terms of experience. Our choices are what we have to work with. How are we going to do this? What are the principles that we're going to use? So, let's look, look at a couple of things here. First of all, biblical law. Law, Torah law, as it comes to us from the Bible. It doesn't mean law the way we think of it. It means guidance or instruction. It's not an absolute instrument. The Jews understood this early on in their better days before the Pharisees took over and the rabbinical system got entrenched. They understood the law not as an absolute instrument, but it needed man to interpret it, needed man to be part and parcel, partners with the law. The law guided us, the law bounded us, but we needed to make our decisions anyway. We still needed to work with it in in a very real way. And so what does this tell us? It tells us that our, our ethics really are situational. And I know situational ethics got a bad name and everything. Okay, that's just license to do whatever you want to do. But start to think about it for a second. Aren't our choices always situational? Do blanket laws ever work? Zero tolerance policies, do they ever work? They always lead to absurdities. You hear about small kids on the radio who took a plastic butter knife to spread peanut butter on their sandwich and they got hauled off and expelled because of a zero tolerance policy. See, we need to be intelligent. We need to be present to our decisions. The law gives us parameters. It gives us some principles to work with. But we need to make our choices within that. The law can only guide us. It can't decide for us. We've talked about this in here before. Is lying always wrong? And we all eventually get around to say, no, it's not always wrong. Does this dress make me look fat? What are you going to say? You're hiding Jews in the attic and the Gestapo is at the door. What are you going to say? See, the moral choice in those situations is to lie because that preserves life, preserves relationship, preserves empowerment, confidence, whatever it is. We need to choose. Lying is always unlawful, but think about it. Unlawful things are not always wrong. And right things are not always lawful. We have to choose. There is a presence that we need to bring to each situation to be able to figure this out. Our choice comes from the inside out. Law comes from the outside in. It is a restriction. It's something that is placed upon us. But even in the midst of that, we need to make the choice in the opposite direction. Jesus is teaching this in every single confrontation that he has with the Pharisees. Because they were the ultimate legalists. They were the ones who brought this to an art form. And this is where they derived all of their power. So they were hanging on to it tooth and nail. Take, for instance, the Sabbath controversies. 
over and over and over again. Jesus goes out of his way to break the oral tradition of the Pharisees. And it's ironic because the original idea of Sabbath, Exodus 20, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, it's very simple. Remember and keep holy the Sabbath. That's it. That's about all you get. And then a little bit more, don't do any servile work, it's called. So don't work, don't light a fire is the only example of servile work that's given. You know, it's this much, just a teeny little bit. But remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Holy, kadash in Hebrew. What does it mean? Literally to make holy means to set apart, to set aside, to dedicate to only one particular use. All week long you have these six days. The same six days the Torah reminds us that God created the earth. But on the seventh day he rested. Six days you have all the time in the world to run around and and think and worry and plan and do all the things that we're doing at breakneck speed. But on that seventh day, take a break. Do something completely different. Every morning here, the prayer, what is it? Stop the thought processes that we are normally doing and let's go into a completely different mode. Let's go into a place that is beneath thought, beneath all those details, beneath all that to-do list, beneath the obligation and the fear and the worry, and just be. Because if we can do that, we are dedicating this time to one specific use, the Lord's use, being able to see again, ascertain the Lord's presence. And that makes it holy. And in the process, we get rejuvenated. We get refreshed. We become ready to tackle another six days of all the craziness. That was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Sabbath law, was to bring us back in contact with God's presence in such a way that we became refreshed and rejuvenated. And here's the irony. In order to keep that law fastidiously, The Pharisees were so concerned that they wrote dozens upon dozens of other laws around that one simple rule, that one simple guidance, instruction, so that they would never break it. And I want to read you just a little bit. This actually comes from my book, The The Fifth Way. But listen how far they went. And it's going to give you an idea why Jesus went as far as he went to try to refute this, to try to get the people to understand it is not this way, not even by a long shot. The intent of the Sabbath law was simple, to provide a time of rest and refreshment, of rededication to God and his purpose. The application of the letter of the law became a nightmare as rabbis of the Pharisaic tradition labored to define just what servile work entailed. The rabbis eventually delineated 39 hedges around the Sabbath law, 39 categories of activities that would be prohibited on Shabbat. The Sabbath. So these hedges were designed at just to be just that. You had a central law, a written law, one of 613 that they extracted out of the what we call the Old Testament, their Tanakh. And in order to protect those laws, they built hedges around them. So you'd have to go through all of these hedges, break them, slowing you down all the time before you actually got to break one of the written laws. They were supposed to be guardrails. They were supposed to be defenses against ever breaking a law. And they were 39 categories of activities that would be prohibited on Shabbat. These 39 categories prohibited work that was either creative or exercised dominion over the environment 
and were loosely divided into four groups. Activities required to make bread, such as sowing, plowing, reaping, threshing, winnowing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking. Activities required to make garments, such as shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning, weaving two or more loops or threads. I mean, two or more loops of threads are getting really specific here, aren't they? Tying, untying, stitching, tearing. Activities required to make leather, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, tanning, scraping, cutting, marking, writing or erasing two or more letters. And activities required to build a house, building, demolishing, kindling or extinguishing fire, finishing, transporting objects more than four cubits, which is just a few feet. But here's the kicker. As restrictive as these 39 may be, they were only categories of activities, each containing many more activities within them. So within each category of work, or malacha, there were direct derivative activities called toledot that carried nearly the same legal severity as the original malacha. Then there were also indirect derivative activities called shavut that carried much less severe punishments if violated. In this way, baking, <laughs> as malacha, carried within it the prohibiting prohibitions against cooking, poaching, and roasting. Al toledot under baking. And even if you weren't making bread, there wasn't much else you could do in the kitchen either on Shabbat, so meals needed to be prepared the day before. And since winnowing, as malacha referred to separating chaff from grain, or making something edible which was previously inedible, it was also unlawful to filter drinkable, undrinkable water to make it drinkable. Or pick small bones from fish. Why do you think they got gefilte fish? You know, you can eat those bones. You don't have to pick them out, so you can eat them on Shabbat, right? Ah, from one commandment to 39 malacha to dozens of toledot and dozens more shavut, restrictions exponentially grew. And keeping in mind that the Sabbath commandment was only one of 613 laws the rabbis recognized starts to bring the incredibly vast scope of the oral tradition into view. Can you imagine? That's one of 613. This is where the Pharisees got their power because nobody could figure this out. It's like the U.S. tax code. You've got to pay somebody to do this for you now. That's who the Pharisees were, right? They were the people everyone had to go through to figure out, am I okay? What can I do? What can I not do? Am I unclean? Do I need to go to the temple and get purified again so that I can come back into community? It was nuts. And the Pharisees knew it, and this is their power, and they guarded it jealously. And the irony is, that's what came out of trying to keep the law that was supposed to rejuvenate, refresh, and bring us back into contact with God's presence. Oh my goodness. Jesus went out of his way to break these oral traditions anywhere and everywhere he could. This is why he healed differently on the Sabbath. Do you ever wonder that? Why he was always healing differently? Because if he just spoke the word, you're healed, that didn't break any any rules, any laws. But as soon as he told them, you're healed, now pick up your pallet and walk, now you're breaking the oral code because you can only carry something a few cubits on the Sabbath. Pick up your pallet and walk now. Ever wonder why he made mud with his spittle, put it on the... Okay, that's kneading. He broke that in order to do that. He went out of his way to break these, to make the point. The Pharisees had made these laws more important than the laws they were meant to protect. 
and were enslaving the people so that they never got any refreshment. They never understood what was going on. The Pharisees had lost the love behind the original law that was meant to bring the people closer to their God. And they only operated out of fear of obedience. And the power over it, the power gave them the people. But for our purposes and what Jesus is telling us is that if something is really from God, it's always love. Always love. In whatever form we might absolutely find it. And this is something that we have to think about. God's love looks like justice to the group in the macro. Right? Justice balances the scales. Without justice, without a balancing of the scale, without absolute fairness, the group is lost. So God's love looks like justice, looks like law to the group. But to the individual, God's love looks like mercy and looks like compassion. Because without mercy and compassion to the individual, you lose the relationship. If all you are doing is balancing the scales in a one-on-one relationship, in a marriage, you're not going to have a relationship and you're not going to have a marriage. You need to go absolutely all in. Mercy and compassion deliberately unbalance the scales of justice, always in favor of the beloved. But it's all love. It just looks different in different contexts. We have to be smart enough to be able to see how God's love changes form depending on the context it's in, depending on the situation that it's in. This messes up our politics profoundly. We want to be a compassionate people. Jesus' message was to individuals, and so he stressed mercy and compassion. That didn't mean he was disregarding justice. But if we try to legislate our mercy and compassion to the group, then we lose the group because we're unbalancing the fairness that needs to be there. And if we try to take justice into our individual relationships, then we lose those in the same way. God is able to make that shift. His love is able to move into any situation and still be love, still provide what is absolutely required. Why is it able to do that? Because God's love is proceeding from an even deeper principle. And that principle is unity. That principle is oneness. That principle is connection. Justice provides the greatest amount of connection and unity to the group. Mercy and compassion provide the greatest amount of connection and unity to individual relationships. But it's all about unity and compassion. If we're going to know how to choose, if we want to know how to get from here to there, then we need to have a guiding principle that allows us to choose and to choose repeatedly in a direction that's going to take us someplace else, someplace we want, really want to go, and not just where we keep ending up. If you're unhappy, if you're in a difficult situation, how do you get from here to there? How do you get to that kingdom that Jesus is talking about? All we have to work with are two tools, That's it. And it it gets so simple but so difficult at the same time. The two tools that we have are awareness and choice. That's it. Every moment contains a choice. But if we're not aware in the moment, we won't be aware of the choice. And then our subconscious takes over and just emotions go where they go, knee-jerk reaction, stimulus response. 
and we end up back where we always are, in those repeated obsessive-compulsive patterns. But this is what the spiritual life is all about. The spiritual life is about developing awareness. Awareness of this unseen world. Awareness of the unity that is laid on top of this endless diversity. I was thinking about what good news really is. Often I say the good news is there is no bad news. I like that. That's okay. But the good news also is endless diversity laid over absolute love. No matter who we are, no matter where we stand in this endless diversity, where we are, where we were born, what we're capable of, what talents we have, accidents of birth, we are all loved exactly the same. Endless diversity over absolute love. Our spiritual lives are about seeing that, seeing that underlying unity and connection, how everything is the same. It's all one thing at its root. It looks crazy complicated on the surface. The spiritual journey is about getting underneath that complexity and seeing how it all connects to just one thing, one thing, awareness and choice. Once we have the awareness, once we have the ability to see in this moment the connection see how we are connected, now we can choose to live as if that is true, as if we are connected. And whatever that choice means, whatever that choice is in the situation, is ours to decide in that moment. You may not know how you would choose a certain thing until you're in that moment, present to that situation, to that person, to know what you would actually do. You might think you know, you might have your own principles, but you won't really know until you're there and choosing. What do you do? How does this work? But choosing as if, making choices that go in a single direction. You want to get from here to there? There's no switch to flip. There's no pill to take. There's no prayer that you can say that is going to take you there. You can understand everything that I'm saying. You can even believe it. You could have it so schooled that you could give this message better than I can, but it won't make a whit of difference to your attitude and to the feelings, the emotional complexity that you have until you start choosing over and over in a given direction and actually starting to transport yourself from here to there. It's our choices that take us where we really want to go. I put some quotes here. I missed one, didn't I? <laughs> Missed a couple. Wow. That's okay. I'm going to read this one anyway, even though it's out of, out of place now. You know, that idea that us being responsible for our choices and not the law. This came from the movie Kingdom of Heaven. If you haven't seen it, it's a good movie to see. A king may move a man, a father may claim a son, but that man can also move himself. And only then does that man truly begin his own game. Remember that howsoever you are played or by whom, your soul is in your keeping alone. Even though those who presume, presume to play you be kings or men of power, when you stand before God, you cannot say, but I was told by others to do thus, or that virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. Remember that. This is a king speaking to a knight over a chessboard, and it's just one of those moments that galvanizes, you know, 
the whole plot point. We are responsible for these choices. Remember the Nuremberg trials after World War II? The Nuremberg defense, as it came to be called? I was just following orders. It's not going to do. Our choices are ours, and ours alone. We are responsible for them. And we don't have to worry about things coming into us. As Jesus says at Mark 7, after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Our choices come from the inside out. They reveal who we really are and not the other way around. Attitude is a choice. Happiness is a choice. Optimism is a choice. Kindness is a choice. Giving is a choice. Respect is a choice. Whatever choice you make, makes you. Choose wisely. John Paul Sartre, we are our choices. Aristotle, choice, not chance, determines your destiny. And this finally one from Clement Stone. You always do what you want to do. This is true with every act. You may say that you had to do something or that you were forced to, but actually whatever you do, you do by choice. Only you have the power to choose for yourself. Choose wisely. Choose unity over and over again. Let the choice for unity, let the desire to lead people better than you found them, guide your choices. Law will be your guide, but still you need to decide. That's the way this works. When it comes right down to it, I'm a writer when I write. I'm a runner when I run. I'm a happy person when I'm happy, you know? We are what we do each and every day, over and over and over again. Brings Yoda back to mind, right? Try not. Do or do not. There is no try. What you do is who you are every day, over and over and over again. A couple of Sundays ago, we talked about bucket lists. Everybody has a bucket list. The one thing we're going to do before we die, right? The list of things. We're not defined by what we do once. We're defined by what we do Get up and show up to do each and every day over and over again. That defines us. Get up early in the morning and you go to the bakery because you want some warm buns because you know that they're there. They're bakers. They get up every morning at four and they bake and by six o'clock when you're there, the buns are ready. You can count on it. You know who they are. They know who they are. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus we will only be followers of Jesus when we choose, like Jesus. Choose what he did. Not because we're following rules, not because we're obeying, waiting to be saved because we did really good here and got our brownie points, but because we know that we're accepted as we are right now, which gives us the freedom to choose oneness, unity, to let our resources flow through us without fear because we know they're going to keep flowing somehow, some way, even if we're really not sure how. Living and choosing each moment is the salvation. If we choose the salvation is the acceptance. If we choose the acceptance that has been right here all along. God already made his choice. Always has. 
our turn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for choosing everything that you did for creating this world to be a place where we can learn to be like you, where we can learn the lessons that we need to learn. We don't understand why it had to be this way or why it has to hurt so much sometimes. But we will begin to trust you more and more that you know what you're doing and that you've given us everything that we need. And we'll start choosing as if that were true. That's our prayer. Give us the courage. Give us the stamina to be able to do just that. Help us to become aware of the people, the guides that will come around alongside and continue to support us and help us as we make these choices. Always towards you. Always toward the unity that you are in our lives. Thank you for the beautiful model and words of your son that Jesus shows us exactly what we need to do and how to do it in our human form. Help us, Lord. Help us to never forget we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.